This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, April 16th. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Rachel Del Judas. Tim Evans is a professor of business and political economy at Middlesex University, London. He joins me on the podcast to talk about coronavirus in England, how nationalized healthcare has affected the response, and the great economic challenges and opportunities that are now reality due to the crisis. Don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Now, on to our top news. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says President Trump will be swiftly challenged in his decision to stop funding the World Health Organization due to its handling of the coronavirus pandemic. The president's halting of funding to the WHO as it leads the global fight against the coronavirus pandemic is senseless. This decision is dangerous, illegal, and will be swiftly challenged, Pelosi said in a statement. On Tuesday, Trump announced that he is ending funding for the WHO while the organization is reviewed for its role in severely mismanaging and covering up the spread of the coronavirus. Trump criticized the organization for its relationship with China. The WHO failed to investigate credible reports in Wuhan that conflicted directly with the Chinese government's official accounts, Trump said. There was no credible information to suspect human-to-human transmission in December 2019, which should have spurred the WHO to investigate immediately. Through the middle of January, it parroted and publicly endorsed the idea that there was not human-to-human contact despite reports and clear evidence to the contrary. Tedros Ghebreyesus, director of the World Health Organization, addressed Wednesday President Trump's decision to halt funding to the World Health Organization via the Evening Standard. The United States of America has been a long-standing and generous friend to WHO, and we hope it will continue to be so. We regret the decision of the President of the United States to order a hold in funding to the World Health Organization. With support from the people and government of the United States, WHO works to improve the health of many of the world's poorest and most vulnerable people. WHO is not only fighting COVID-19, we're also working to address polio, measles, malaria, Ebola, HIV, tuberculosis, malnutrition, cancer, diabetes, mental health, and many other diseases and conditions. We also work with countries to strengthen health systems and improve access to life-saving health services. WHO is reviewing the impact of our work of any withdrawal of U.S. funding and we'll work with our partners to fill any financial gaps we face and to ensure our work continues uninterrupted. House Democrats introduced legislation Tuesday to send payments of $2,000 to Americans affected by coronavirus after qualifying Americans started receiving one-time stimulus checks from the coronavirus relief package passed by Congress and signed by Trump on March 27th. As millions of Americans file for unemployment week over week, we have to work quickly to patch the dam, and that means putting cash in the hands of hardworking families, Tim Ryan of Ohio said in a statement. 
The payments would continue until employment reaches its previous levels before the pandemic hit, per The Hill. Face masks or coverings will soon be required in the state of New York. Governor Andrew Cuomo announced Wednesday during a press conference that he's issuing an executive order that will require people to wear a face covering when in public. Here's what he had to say per The Hill. If you're going to be in public uh, and you cannot maintain social distancing, then have a mask and put the mask on when you are not in socially distanced places. You're walking down the street, you're walking down the street alone, great. You're now at an intersection and there are people in the intersection and you're going to be in proximity to other people, put the mask on. Thousands of Michiganders descended on Lansing, the capital of Michigan, on Wednesday in a vehicle protest to show their disapproval of Governor Gretchen Whitmer's stay-at-home order. The event, which was dubbed Operation Gridlock and was promoted with the slogan, She's driving us out of business, we are driving to Lansing. Whitmer's Stay Home, Stay Safe executive order, which was updated Thursday, bans public and private gatherings among persons outside a single household. It also mandates, according to a press release from Whitmer, that stores control crowd sizes, with big stores having to keep the amount of people in the store at any one time to no more than four people for every 1,000 square feet of space for customers, and that small stores must restrict capacity to 25% of the total occupancy limits. The numbers are in, and retail sales for the month of March are down by a record-breaking 8.7%. CNBC reported that the Department of Commerce has not seen a decline that sharp since they began tracking the series in 1992. Tim Quillon, a senior economist at Wells Fargo Securities in Charlotte, North Carolina, said per CNBC that in general, consumer spending is going to look about as bad as it has ever been, although there will be some categories of resilience. The panic buying at grocery stores cannot offset the retrenchment in spending that we will see in other categories. Now, stay tuned for my conversation with Professor Tim Evans on coronavirus in England. At The Daily Signal, we want to make sure you and your family are receiving the most accurate information about the coronavirus. Here's an important message from First Lady Melania Trump. To all of our medical personnel and other frontline responders, on behalf of a grateful nation, thank you. The President and I appreciate all that you're doing to keep the people of our country healthy and safe. In the most difficult of times, the United States never fails to rise to the occasion with both unity and strength. It is because of you that the people of America are receiving the care and treatment they need. We stand united with you, and we salute your courageous and compassionate efforts. Our prayers are with all who are fighting this invisible enemy, COVID-19. I'm joined today on the Daily Signal podcast by Professor Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University of London. Professor Evans, it's great to have you on the Daily Signal podcast. To start off, Professor Evans, can you tell us about yourself and your work at the university and if it's been impacted in any way by coronavirus? So I'm Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University 
which is a major campus in North London. We have campuses in other parts of the world as well, including Mauritius, Malta, Dubai. We're the only university in the United Kingdom to have won the Queen's Award for International Enterprise twice this century. Um, our campus in London uh, is well shut down because of coronavirus. Um, uh, we're one of the world's most uh, top 15 most diverse universities. So we have huge numbers of people uh, from the Far East, from the Middle East, from Africa, as well as Europe, the United Kingdom, and North and South America. Um, uh, uh, we haven't had a huge number of cases on campus, uh, far from it. Uh, but we took the prudent step in following the government's guidelines and closing down uh, three or four weeks ago. We're lucky we live in an age of technology where people can carry on a huge amount of their work and students can carry on studying um, online. I, I, I dread to think what would have happened if we had this pandemic, let's say before the age of the internet, maybe 1990, because so many of us wouldn't have been able to carry on working. Um, but um, that's the situation. And an awful lot of the UK uh, is closed down. People are working from home, shops, pubs, restaurants are closed. Um, and the virus is taking its toll, not just on human life, uh, but also clearly on our economy. Well, you mentioned how restaurants are closed, people are working from home. What is it like right now on the streets in your community? I can imagine it's very quiet, but can you kind of set the scene for us and what you've seen in the past weeks? Yeah, so I'm someone who was born and raised in central London. Uh, If I was to get in a motor vehicle, uh, and drive in about 12 to 15 minutes from now. I'd be absolutely in the centre of town. I should be in Piccadilly Circus and in what we call the West End, which would be the equivalent of Times Square on Broadway in New York. So I'm, I'm pretty central, really. Um, the streets, I would say, are much quieter. Uh, generally, there's about 10 or 15% of the traffic that there would be normally. Children are off from school. They would be this time of year anyway because of Easter holidays. But many of them, of course, have not gone uh, abroad uh, or to other parts of the world. Many are cooped up in their homes. Uh, A huge number of people are working from home, again, thanks to the Internet. Uh, Local restaurants, pubs, uh, most shops are closed. Uh, There are supermarkets and food stores open. Uh, They tend to have queues. They have lines of people that are spaced out in what we call physical social distancing. Um, So things are quiet, but uh, things are working for the absolute necessities. You know, our our pharmacy stores, our chemist shops are working, and our food stores are working. um, And there have been no great shortages. Um, Of course, where there has been a complete mobilization, where there's frenetic effort is uh, with... Uh, clinical staff, doctors, with nurses, uh, right across our hospital sector, our nursing homes, our residential care home sector. Um, there, this is in effect the largest mobilisation um, that the prisoners had. Um, in effect, since May 1940 uh, and the early stages of the Second World War. So Britain has a, a government-run healthcare system, and you've previously written about that in a report for the Heritage Foundation. Could you explain quickly to our listeners how the United Kingdom's healthcare system works? Yeah, so as I pointed out 
in the Heritage Paper of last year. Um, in 1948, the British government promised that the state, uh, the state healthcare system, which we call the National Health System or the NHS, um, uh, would provide all medical, dental, and nursing care. And they put a leaflet. They said to every home in the country, everyone rich or poor will be able to use it. And of course, to create that service in 1948, government came into public ownership at around 3,118 previously uh, independently or local government-owned hospitals, homes, and clinics. So it was a huge nationalisation. And the reality is that the promise 1948, if, if you if you if you look at the leaflet that was sent to every home back then, the promise that was written in black and white on it has never really been fulfilled. Um, uh, the NHS never quite managed to do all dentistry. Private dentistry has always remained in the United Kingdom. Um, in terms of nursing care, it's certainly true that a lot of nursing care is provided in uh, NHS hospitals uh, by the, by the taxpayer. But for longer term care, particularly for elderly people, people that, who need what we call social care, an awful lot of nursing provision um, wasn't necessarily provided by uh, the NHS. It was provided either by local government or people who chose to pay for themselves. And really the big picture of, of British healthcare is that since the 1970s, right through the 80s, 90s and beyond, um, however much money has been pouring into the NHS and politicians of all stripes and parties have invested very heavily in it, um, lots more money has gone into it. Uh, it has never quite been able to keep up with public expectations or the increasing demands. And so today uh, we have uh, probably seven or 800 NHS hospitals in Britain. Uh, and by large, they do a good job, but they're complemented and to an extent relieved by more than 200 uh, uh, independent or, or private hospitals. Some of them are for profit, some of them are not for profit. Uh, and, and also in this crisis, um, a, a third and important sector, I have to say, is the military medical sector. And, and what's really happened is that since uh, the beginning uh, and early and, and, and middle of March, um, the government has been organising the full integration of the whole of the UK's healthcare resource right across the NHS and the independent sector and the military sector um, to deal with coronavirus, whilst also at the same time dealing with trauma cases and, of course, people who might need ongoing care for things like cancer. An awful lot of elective acute surgery, things like hip replacements or knee replacements, things like that, have simply been paused and put on hold. That mounting backlog will have to be dealt with later. But the reality is that probably today, uh, nearly half of uh, UK dentistry uh, probably has a major private element to it. Uh, about one in four people who need long-term care, they invariably go private, not just in terms of provision, but also in terms of funding. Today, we have about 16 or 17,000 uh, private nursing and residential care homes in Britain. And in this coronavirus, the NHS is backed up by its additional 200 uh, independent hospitals, uh, which are providing thousands of uh, beds and hundreds of intensive care and high dependency beds, ventilators, uh, and all those things. And so that that's an extraordinary mobilisation. It's a mobilisation in economic terms, but it goes beyond the NHS 
uh, and that is really mobilizing uh, the fully mixed economy in healthcare, which in 2020 is the, the base reality for the United Kingdom. We don't have that fully fledged nationalization uh, that, that we knew in the 1950s and 60s. We have a more mixed economy approach today. So right now, countries across the world are grappling with coronavirus, and I'm curious if you've noticed any significant differences in countries between nations with predominantly private health care and those with government-run health care. Well, the, the first thing is that uh, it, 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 it's too early. We, we don't have uh, all the data in um, from around the world. For example, at the Blavatnik School at Oxford University in the United Kingdom, they have a huge project where they are looking at the interventions and the reactions of pretty much every government around the world to this to this uh, coronavirus. Um, and they're plotting uh, each intervention, whether shops are closed or pubs, or what different people are doing in different parts of the world. Uh, I'm in the advisory board of that, and about 10 days ago, we'd already gathered 140,000 uh, data points from well over 100 countries. Um, so it's going to be really interesting when we get the final you know, uh, uh, toll from coronavirus to understand what happened, and if you will, to do ex post facto rationalizations. Again, it's far too early for us to know what the impact of the virus is going to be on overall death rates. Uh, there is, of course, very sadly, a group of people uh, who are vulnerable, some of them are old, and uh, and had all manner of, of, of medical problems. Um, we're only going to know, though, the real impact, the actual correlation uh, the causal chain, if you will, uh, between coronavirus and death rates, where we can where we can map those. And the other thing I would say is we're also going to have to calculate the knock-on effects of the interventions to deal with coronavirus. Let me give you one example. In the downturn of 2008-9, with that dreadful financial crisis, part of the human cost of that downturn was we now know that an additional 10,000 people in various countries seem to have committed suicide. Um, that, that, you know, that's a number that was just out of kill from what you normally got in normal years then. So there was a causal link there, we believe. Um, it's going to be very interesting when we look at not only government interventions, but that data at the end. And then in amongst that, we can be able to look, hopefully, at how different systems perform. I mean, I have to say... Britain is very lucky in that we have not just uh, our state healthcare sector, but we have a vast plethora of private hospitals, of nursing homes, of charities. Uh, we have a very broad and very deep civil society which is responding to complement that which is being mobilised by the state. And I contrast that, for example, with... Canada, where for a long time independent healthcare, you, you know, it's been illegal. You, you're not able to have a private hospital in Canada. It's why so many Canadians go for their private care and treatment down the U.S. border. Something you'll be familiar with. Um, and, and the problem is that when you have a coronavirus, when you have a pandemic like this, it is that moment where a society, however your healthcare 
arrangement for configured is that moment where healthcare, by definition, meets the full coercive power of the state. It's where the healthcare conjoins with the military. And if in that moment you have a very broad and deep, not only state healthcare sector and some military resource, but you have lots of institutions in civil society and you have, for example, hundreds of independent hospitals that can join the effort, that gives you breadth, depth, flexibility. And, and I do wonder, it'll be very interesting when we do, maybe next year, get to look back look at the data, how countries like Canada that, that don't have the additional independent or private resources have been able to react. There are other countries in Europe like Germany that has much more localised, much more flexible and adaptive systems. Uh, and there are people in our newspapers who are suggesting uh, that, that localisation of German healthcare, the flexibility, uh, a much greater mixture of public and private provision um, uh, has added to them returning early on seemingly better data. But as I say, this is very early. And for example, we don't know um, whether what we're dealing with at the moment is the first wave or indeed if we're going to be facing a second wave uh, coming along in the future. The strategy in Britain has been to mobilise all that resource as quickly as possible, aptly bolster intensive care and then try and flatten the peak and spread it over time to make sure that our health system, all that resource, can digest this pandemic. Um, my hunch is that when we do come to ending lockdown, it will be incremental. We will probably have to wait for a vaccine before we return to complete normality and we stop shielding the, 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 the medically vulnerable uh, and and particularly you know, the the elderly and frail, um, uh, there will be an incremental return. But but so far, I have to say, uh, the conjuncture of the military, the NHS, and the private all mixing together uh, seems to have stood us in good stead. Well, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson was one of the most prominent people to come down with the coronavirus. And although he was admitted to the ICU at one point, he is now doing better. I'm curious, what was the attitude in Britain during his health crisis? The attitude, I think, was a very human response. And it was a human response that transcended political allegiance and political stripe. Most people this is a prime minister in his mid-50s. Uh, he's quite a bouncy and energetic character. Um, uh, you know, he has uh, a younger partner. She, they have a baby on the way. Um, and I think a lot of people's heart went out to them. Um, and I sense a lot of people right across the political divide wanted him, of course, to return to health. There was, I think, uh, a scary 24 or 48 hours um, where he was in intensive care. And I think we could all see on the faces of cabinet ministers in broadcasts the, their, their nervousness. So there was no surprise when a day or two later we, we were indeed told just how serious things became for the prime minister for a brief window. Um, but I think people's heart went down to him. I think generally um, uh, the, uh, the government in Britain have done fairly well. The Labour opposition has been particularly weak. It hasn't been well led in recent years. 
and they have a new leader in Keir Starmer who's just getting his feet under the table. And the consequence of this is that actually the Conservatives are riding quite high in the opinion polls. But, you know, I have a hunch that generally in a time of pandemic where people become so reliant on government and the the judgments of uh, senior governmental scientists and uh, senior medical advisors, my my impression is that governments around the world and leaderships tend to be doing quite well in terms of polling and electoral support. There is, in a sense, uh, a sense of unity behind whoever is on duty. I certainly think from a European point of view that the European Union has not covered itself in glory during this episode. Um, uh, lots of barriers have gone up within Europe between nation states, and there's been very much a return to the politics of the nation state. Of course, there are a lot of banking sectors, um, particularly in southern Europe, that, that have stressed. I'm particularly thinking of the Italian sector, how that plays out uh, when this crisis comes to an end and what the implications of that are for the European project for the EU, I don't know. I think the big loser, particularly in the United States, uh, will be potentially China. I think lots of companies, lots of organizations will want to diversify their supply chains in future and not perhaps always be so reliant on China. So they'll look to other uh, competitive economies around the world to bolster and diversify their supply chains. But I think this will play into the hands politically uh, of people uh, who have long been wary, dare I say it, of China um, and who are worried about um, their governance and their seeming inability to um, tell the truth. I mean, there was a very interesting article recently in National Review Online, which detailed day by day um, the early goings on uh, with the Chinese government, when clearly local doctors were warning the party and the leadership that there was a problem in Wuhan, and these people were vilified, they were called into police stations, uh, they were ordered to sign pieces of paper that basically tried to shut them up, and the full, you know, horror of a totalitarian state lying uh, has subsequently uh, become clear for all to see around the world. So I think China uh, has got uh, a big reputational problem on its hand, and I suspect that will bleed out into trade relations and trade supply chains in the future. Well, Professor Evans, we've all seen news reports about the shortages of doctors and medical equipment from around the world due to COVID-19. What specifically are you seeing in the UK? So in the United Kingdom, um, uh, uh, we are seeing, um, I think, some rather clever, ingenious solutions that are not perfect, but we're not in a perfect world and we're not in a perfect moment when it comes to uh, staffing. And I'll give you one example. Uh, we have, of course, in this country, two internationally uh, recognized airlines, British Airways, uh, and we have Virgin, Virgin Atlantic. Of course, if you are a member of, of cabin crew in any reputable airline anywhere in the world, you are, in fact, 
uh, trained, you're trained in resuscitation, you're trained in first aid, you have a basic level of skill and you have to maintain uh, that level of skill. So what's happened at a very practical level in the United Kingdom is that with a lot of support from the army and the military, huge additional uh, medical centres uh, has been put in place in East London. A huge uh, conference centre has been turned into a makeshift hospital. It has uh, the potential to have 4,000 beds. The cabin crew from airlines have been brought in and they have been upskilled. So in effect, they become care assistants. Uh, junior nurses are rapidly being retrained and certain um, skills honed, so they're going up a notch. Very experienced and senior nurses, consultant nurses, uh, senior sisters are in some ways overtaking the role of some aspects of junior doctors. Junior doctors are stepping up a notch, you know, etc. Now, consultant doctors, people at the, sort of the top of the food chain of medicine, um, you know, you could be uh, a rectal surgeon, you could be someone who is doing plastic surgery. What happened in recent weeks is you again have done crash courses, you've been retrained, um, and you have been brought up to speed again with resuscitation, ventilation, and ICU. And so there has been a very, very swift, very clever uh, rejigging of the talent. Uh, and the human resources available. And so far, um, we seem to have managed. It, it, you know, I can say this as Brit, we're sort of famed for coming up with solutions in rather dark moments. Um, you know, we have, we're, we're a country that naturally, if there is a crisis, we sort of pop into our gardens, do some gardening, and then end up in the garden shed where we invent things. Um, I think that's part of our own sort of self-identity. And in this instance, we've buckled down, we've got on with the crisis, we've retooled in rather inventive and ingenious ways uh, lots of the skills that various groups have. And so far, we seem to be doing okay. But I mentioned much earlier in this interview that we do have a growing mountain, a backlog of lots and lots of, for example, acute elective surgery. And that's simply not being done at the moment. When we went into this crisis, the National Health Service was not meeting all its targets. Often people were not getting cancer care as quickly as they should, people waiting too long. Um, and this is with you know, increasing amounts of money that the that, that politicians have been investing into it, that taxpayers have been spending on it. So I think that there has to be a lot of innovative work at the end of this of how we deal with the backlog of the, of the medical work that is occurring. And the only way I can think of dealing with it is that, that again, the NHS is going to have to have for a much, much longer period a, a, a partnership an ongoing partnership with those independent hospitals and maybe even elements of the military to deal with the backlog because otherwise um, this crisis in terms of medical need could go on for many, many years indeed as we get grips with that backlog. Well, Professor Evans, you had mentioned that before the lockdown ends, there might be a need for a vaccine or other measures 
What will the lessons, though, you think be once you all do go back to work and as you look back on what's happened? So I think the first uh, thing is, and there's going to have to be uh, a big look back exercise. Uh, Government, uh, this is all around the world, governments all around the world are going to have to look back at their contingency planning uh, strategies where they worked well and where they failed. I think in some instances, um, that look back exercise is going to have to inform uh, elements of, dare I say it, industrial strategy. And by that, I don't mean some sort of socialistic and onerous central planning doctrine, but I do mean that just as nations like the United Kingdom or the United States Um, go to great lengths to make sure that they have the industrial capacity to, uh, so that if things, if you're in a difficult situation, if you enter a war, or that if you are facing a pandemic, you you have the industrial capacity to make the things you might need. You know, for example, uh, if Britain found itself in a war, do we have the capacity to produce the steel that our warships or tanks might need? All that kind of stuff. So I think when the look back comes, we're going to have to look back and inform our contingency planning, and we're going to have to revisit, did we really have the equipment, and did we really have the industry to produce the things that we need? Secondly, we're going to have to think more clearly, I think, in terms of national security. This is a wake-up call for lots of people who have been interested, not only in pandemics, but the potential in the modern world, for example, for biological warfare to conjoin with economic warfare. What can we learn from this as we look forward? Uh, I think there's going to have to be a much broader and pragmatic acceptance that in healthcare, the NHS cannot do everything. In fact, no one sector can do everything in a moment like this. You have to have a national effort that spans the various sectors. I think there will be an increased role for the independent sector, particularly independent hospitals, for many years to come to deal with the backlog and to increasingly relieve the NHS of some of the pressures. Um, And I think also geopolitically, um, this is going to be a wake-up call, not only to many democratic governments, but also to many businesses in terms of their supply chains. Finally, and I'll conclude on this point, um, I think that more authoritarian characters, uh, you know, people in Ankara, people in Moscow, people in Beijing, uh, to keep a lid on this uh, and to, for example, for, for, for the folks in Beijing uh, to basically uh, uh, try and cover up the mistakes that were made early on uh, in this crisis, they and other more authoritarian regimes are probably going to fall into the trap of becoming more authoritarian. I don't think that this pandemic is going to turn, for example, Vladimir Putin into being a more liberal, libertarian character. I think that he will likely become more centralizing and more authoritarian. And ultimately, that might help to shore up some of these leaderships short term and their their path to authoritarianism. But as we know from history, uh, authoritarian regimes become fragile, they become brittle, and the more authoritarian they become, they become less agile, 
uh, and also less respected. They lose not only the moral and intellectual high ground of debate, but they domestically become more fragile. And I suspect that's where countries like Russia, Turkey, Iran, China, and others will head. Well, going back quickly to the economic consequences of coronavirus, once this crisis is over or starts to wind down, how do you think it will change politics and public policy for your country over the months and years ahead? So I think the United Kingdom um, has uh, a huge challenge. Uh, We were a country that before this crisis Uh, had been trying to encourage growth and managing it quite successfully in recent years, uh, paying down our national debt as a proportion of GDP. Our debt was quite high. It was around 80%, 85% of GDP. This crisis could easily add 10, 15, 20, maybe even 25, 30% uh, uh, GDP to our debt. Uh, We won't know. Uh, until we get through to June, July, and August, quite what the, what the numbers um, and the projections are on that. Uh, but I do think that uh, that the British government is going to have to focus on growth. It is going to have to uh, either strike uh, 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 a pretty robust supply side and free market free trading deal with Europe, or indeed one with the United States. I think Britain, going into this crisis, was quite lucky that it had stockpiled an awful lot of equipment uh, and supplies in the lead-up to Brexit. Um, those stockpiles, we're, we're lucky in some instances we had them, they've been used on this pandemic. I think that in the short term, uh, the government's going to have to capture all the supply-side reforms. A awful lot of regulations have been relaxed. I'll give you one tiny example to whet the appetite. Until a few weeks ago, if I ran a restaurant in Britain, I couldn't necessarily also run a takeaway service from it, or maybe as Americans call it a takeout service. Now you can. Another example is that up until this crisis, I had to have what we would technically call um, supplies or medical supplies or protective equipment, what was called a CE mark, which is a a European Union kite mark. Um, Well, there have been some shortages and supplies have been freed up. And we don't necessarily now have to, of course, use those products with that kite mark. So there is a sort of agility, um, uh, a sort of dynamism that can come from these moments. Um, now, providing the British government um, is successful in spreading the economic pain of this um, in terms of debt uh, over the long term and can uh, capture some of the supply-side reforms, go for elements of deregulation, manage taxes sensibly, um, uh, perhaps reduce corporation tax, but really make Britain stand out as a beacon of enterprise. And within that country, there is a challenge where we balance on the economic prosperity of the southeast of England and the city of London by giving, by unleashing productivity and talent in the north of England, and that will require some upfront investment. If we can do these things well, then I think, uh, just as we've gone into this crisis and we've gone in quickly and deeply, so I hope that the outturn will be dramatic, um, and that certainly by the fourth quarter of this year, uh, we will have we will see a return not only to growth, but hopefully some dramatic growth. 
Um, but the, the, the saving grace of Britain, in a way, um, is that uh, this will be a moment where we can take stock. I described how we're potentially going to see a rather different geopolitical landscape internationally. Um, if companies, for example, want to diversify uh, supply chains, um, in some instances pivot away from China, well, how will that feed into opportunities for British manufacturing and talent? You know, there's an awful lot that's coming, I think, in the near future that isn't just a challenge, but we're going to be able to benefit from. And of course, Britain, as one of the world's most dynamic, one of the most successful economies, uh, will, I think, rise to that challenge. And as ever, as we've done for hundreds of years, economically and in terms of invention and medicine and, and everything like you know, vaccines or whatever, I think we will punch well above our weight. So I'm quite optimistic, I have to say. And lastly, Professor Evans, what do you want the United States as well as the rest of the world to know about what the UK has been through? So, you know, the first thing is there is an extraordinary dialogue of the deaf when it comes to the Brits and the Americans on healthcare. The average American thinks that everything in Britain when it comes to medicine is socialized, it's all nationalized, it's run by the state. That simply isn't true. I repeat, we have about 17,000 independent or private nursing residential care homes in this country. We have 200 uh, independent private hospitals. We have huge numbers of charities that deal with all kinds of aspects of health and medicine, everything from the Parkinson's Disease Society to Alzheimer's, and I could go on. Conversely, a lot of British people make the, the mistake that they think that everything in North America is private. The average British person has never heard of Medicare, Medicaid, veterans' health care, you know, they, they don't understand the enormous sums of money, both at federal and at state level, uh, that the United States spends on its mandated uh, health care schemes and its, and, and its public health uh, facilities. Um, so I would say the first thing is uh, it's always good to overcome dialogues of the deaf and to understand slightly more objectively um, each other. Um, I think that in the military sphere... Uh, the United Kingdom, the US, has long been very close together, along with the Five Eyes community, you know, Australia, New Zealand, Canada. I think that will continue. Um, and, and, and I think that community will probably become ever more relevant to bolstering the liberal democracies, for example, of friends in, in, in Western Europe and in parts of Eastern Europe. Uh, I think um, uh, that... Um, the, the biggest challenge uh, facing Britain and the United States and the democracy, I have to say, is the vast quantities of debt that, that we are shouldering. I think the United States is already uh, more into debt than 100% of GDP. You probably owe something, your debt is probably something in the order of $22 trillion. Britain, Britain's debt is in excess of $2 trillion. Pounds. And if I took the off-balance sheet liabilities, um, of, for example, of, of U.S. pensions, then then your debt is even larger. And I think this is a civilizational challenge that the liberal democracies of, of the West 
place, and not just governments, but also levels of, of private debt uh, amongst uh, private companies and indeed households. And so I would like to think that as we take stock and as we reflect and as we work through this historic inflection point, and that's what often pandemics are, we think slightly more clearly in the future about what governments really can do, what they can't do. And I think I would have a plea for a greater degree of transparency and honesty. I do wish politicians of all stripes would simply start pandering to their bases, promising ever more, and then being ever dodgier, if I can use that colloquialism, with their balance sheets. Because I really do think that, 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 that we are playing with fire if we all simply get into ever more debt. That isn't me saying that we shouldn't spend money on this pandemic, rescue human life uh, when we can absolutely and categorically, I believe that we should and clearly we are. But, but there are other callings in the years and decades ahead uh, that are also very, very important. Well, Professor Evans, thank you so much for sharing that perspective and thank you for joining us on the Daily Signal podcast. My absolute pleasure. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thank you for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. We do appreciate your patience as we record remotely during these weeks. Please be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. And please leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts and give us your feedback. Stay healthy and we will be back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Thalia Rampersad, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.